Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Alex Mandela who is a researcher with the Q Origins Project. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. It's, I've followed some of your work, and it's, it's awesome. So I guess just to begin with, what is the Q Origins Project? Well, it's a open source intelligence investigation of, well, obviously Q's origins. I think that's how the, uh, the project sort of started off. And now we're starting to expand as QAnon is evolving into more and more stuff. I mean, the, the election fraud kind of narratives, the anti-vaxxer kind of narratives. And with me, I'm really interested in how QAnon sort of plays into these other far-right movements, specifically anti-Semitism, which is what my latest article is about. So, What was it that specifically sparked your interest in QAnon? Why did you, why did you look at this and think, this is something that should be looked at? Oh, wow. Well, I, uh, I'm a graduate student. I, I go to Central Connecticut State University, and I was sort of trying to figure out what I wanted to do my master's on, and I settled on international studies for a variety of reasons, and specifically terrorism. I was really, really interested in terrorism and violent extremism. And one day I got really lucky and I scored an internship with the United Nations Counterterrorism Committee's Executive Directorate during the pandemic. And it was during that time that I, you know, they had me attend all of these different webinars of various topics, you know, foreign fighters and tech policy and all sorts of different stuff. And there was one on the far right. And up until that time, I wasn't really that familiar with the American far right or even the broader transnational far right in general. And I was listening to a talk by Matthew Feldman, who is, I think he's the director of the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right in London, English-based think tank. And uh, I heard him mention QAnon and I was like, huh, you know, I, I had never really heard of QAnon. It was, it was, I think, November of 2020. And that was really, during that month was really when QAnon was starting to pick up in the national spotlight here in the United States, specifically surrounding Donald Trump. And I thought, man, this is a really interesting movement. And then, uh, of course, they played a major role in January 6th Capitol insurrection. And it was at that point I was sold. I was like, I need to learn more about this movement. I mean, I, I was scared to death because I thought, you know, this is a major problem in the country and look at what they almost got away with on January 6th. And it was after that, that I just sort of, yeah, it was, it was a no brainer. I just, I had to get to know this movement better and sort of what underlies it and its motivations and its origins. And that's, that's really what sort of folded me into the Q origins project was I was seeking out researchers that had a lot to do with this thing. And uh, yeah, that, that was it. One thing that I noticed you posting a little while ago was you were one of the first people to notice uh, this poster ghost Ezra. 
uh, on Telegram. Could you tell, without going into his docs, who is Ghost Ezra and sort of what role did he play in the QAnon universe? You know, that it's interesting. He's he's more of a recent player. So Ghost Ezra had like a really, in QAnon terms, he had really kind of a marginal Twitter following. And from what I understand, his Twitter account wasn't created until after Q had actually stopped posting. And he was really big into like the election fraud kind of stuff, like the legal avenues of the election fraud. And then after January 6th, with the big ousting and, uh, you know, all of the Q influencers leaving Twitter and Facebook and other popular platforms and, and those popular platforms sort of closing their doors on the QAnon movement. He moved over to Telegram like like several others did. Um, he's not unique in that sense, but where he is more unique is that Telegram is really where he gained this massive following, like 300,000 subscribers in a matter of, uh, I couldn't tell you the time frame that he amassed that following, but it was rather quickly. I mean, you know, I started following him after he took his anti-Semitic turn on May, mid-May, May 20th, I think, where he started going from election fraud and sort of like running the mill Q stuff to totally overt anti-Semitism and Christian identity sort of stuff. And that's that's really what piqued my interest was like, holy cow, this guy is ins- insanely popular, more popular than other popular Q Telegram channels. And he's fielding these extremely anti-Semitic narratives. I was like, how is that going to impact this movement, this QAnon movement, who, whose conspiracy theories are are already so adaptable, you know, they're already so malleable and amorphous. Like I, I was really interested and, and sort of frightened, actually really frightened <laughs> at what uh, at what that could become. And was he supposed to be like, who was the character? Was he supposed to be some sort of a uh, insider in the same way as Q was? I, you know, I, I've heard that. I'm not entirely sure to be quite honest with you i don't believe so like i've never heard in all my time following ghost Rides, i mean i followed him all summer I, I never really heard or read rather anything that sort of alluded to him being like a government insider i know there was one reporter um, or analyst who said that he was but no I, I don't remember that ever being an explicit part of his sort of larp i guess you could call it and in terms of so you mentioned looking at this guy and wondering how his dropping of sort of overt anti-semitism into these narratives was going to affect the Q movement. Uh, how, how did it affect the Q movement? Well, I mean, for one thing, it, it struck me that the QAnon movement grew so popular specifically because it was so far removed from 4chan and from 8chan, where all of the really vile racism and anti-Semitism really was. At least that's how the, the conventional thinking goes. And now that we see an, incredible pop, an, an incredibly popular Q Telegram influencers sort of fielding these same narratives that you would find on like a 4chan, in like 4chan poll board or in, in other sort of 8chan image board circles. It's really interesting to see how there's not that much pushback. There's not that much like disinterest. Like it's not like suddenly, oh, he's becoming extremely anti-Semitic. We got to cut and run. It's like the narratives are sort of adapting and sort of latching on to Q narratives. And sort of taking that amorphous deep state, you know, liberals and Democrats, et cetera, et cetera, and, and sort of focusing in on Jewish people. Uh, at least that's the way I see it and interpret it in the Telegram channel. So not leaving aside Ghost Ezra's docs, who is Ghost Ezra? <laughs> Logically AI, which is another, uh, I believe they're a British-based conglomerate as well. Uh, they uncovered through uh, like a, I think it was like a Yelp review where he 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 Yelp reviewed a synagogue as as one star and said bad or something ridiculous like that and that was uh, that was one of the major pieces of evidence that sort of led them to 
to confirming his identity as Ghost Ezra. He's a, a Floridian, a 39-year-old Floridian by the name of Robert Smart. And he's an evangelical Christian, which if like it, it's extremely hard, especially with something like QAnon to to create like a, or, or any extremist movement for that matter. It's extremely hard to sort of create like an average profile of an extremist. But if there was ever sort of an average profile of, of a QAnon adherent, it would be like an evangelical Christian, middle-aged He's very into Donald Trump. He went to several Trump rallies. And the other thing, and this sort of played, this was after I had, well, actually just, just before I had written the article, but I came out with a thread that was observing Ghost Ezra's brand of anti-Semitism and how it lacked sort of an element of overt racism, which I thought was extremely interesting because typically you see those two together in tandem, especially in some of the more hardcore neo-Nazi telegram channels and Christian identity channels and stuff like that. His brand actually completely did away with overt racism and just said, look, all of the tensions, the racial tensions that are, that are present uh, in today's world are a result of a Jewish cabal. And I thought it interesting that his wife is actually a Colombian immigrant. So, I mean, I don't want to make too many assumptions about his own internal processes. You know, assumptions are kind of a bad, uh, bad, bad thing to do, but it sort of makes sense that Using like a deep state cabal facilitating what we would call white genocide or white replacement or the great replacement or however you want to put it. He would sort of use that narrative to reconcile with Trump's rhetoric, the, the president, President Donald Trump's rhetoric about like an immigrant invasion into the United States and, and sort of reconcile that narrative with his own personal life. So that's who he is, really, is he's a he's a 39 year old Floridian man, an evangelical Christian and an extreme anti-Semite, apparently. What sort of impact did him, his identity being revealed have on Ghost Ezra? Well, that's... Uh, the way I see it, it's still sort of developing. I think it didn't have as big of an impact as impact as I, I would have liked it to. I mean, the, in August, there were two things that... Two developments, I guess you could say, that sort of could have impacted his popularity and, and sort of his branding, and that was the doxing. And also Telegram, well, not Telegram specifically, but the Apple and Google apps, like the app stores that host Telegram, sort of banned his comment section, not the whole channel, but his comment section, which is where a lot of the recruitment into more hardcore racist or anti-Semitic Telegram channels was going on, where a lot of the discourse like, you know, was, was taking place and like the more explicit uh, sort of thing. So between those two, I mean... There were some people who are of the mind like, oh, this guy's finished. You know, finally doxing works. You know, it's going to come out that he's just this ordinary, disgruntled, middle-aged man. And to be quite honest with you, I, I don't really think it did all that much. I mean, his views are still retaining. I mean, he, he still gets hundreds of thousands of views on his on his photos and his and his posts on Telegram. He's still getting, I mean, not all the time, but he's still getting like two to 3,000 comments under every post, even though the comment section is blocked, which is, is, it's alarming. And it, it really makes me believe, and it, like, it's, it's my belief that they squandered his, not only his censorship and his deplatforming. Well, actually, that, that is what they squandered was his censorship and, and deplatforming. They should have, if they really wanted to make an impact, they should have shut the tap on the whole channel because after they sort of blocked his comment section on Apple and Google devices specifically, he started posting instructions on how to circumvent that mechanism. And I, I really think that it probably would have made a more meaningful impact if they had just shut the whole channel down. I mean, yeah, sure, he would have tried to do a ban evasion and maybe make a new account, but you know, you, you're just you're retaining all that that huge following, and you're just redirecting them 
off of the Google or the app store and onto computers or, you know, using it through some other, accessing the comment section through some other means. You're listening to Yena Pesaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Alex Mandela from the Q Origins Project. Do you think with the, I guess, the, the reduced appeal of QAnon and its seeming dissolution into a whole array of other kinds of ideas and conspiracies, the failure of uh, Donald Trump to resume his uh, rightful throne, um, that anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic beliefs are going to become increasingly a core part of the set of beliefs that once constituted QAnon and do you think, what is it about these? I mean, obviously, you know, there's a long history of anti-Semitism which draws upon all sorts of conspiracy theories, but is there anything in particular that you think in the current uh, climate uh, renders anti-Semitism uh, as a belief system so attractive to people who had some association with or were invested in QAnon? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I, I'm not sure that the failure to manifest Trump or reinstate Trump as the president of the United States or any of these other prophecies per se is really going to inspire people to take up anti-Semitism because the anti-Semitic element is really just latching on to the super conspiracy in and of itself. So like the the whole QAnon big tent really, it applies well to things like the, you know, the protocols of the learned elders of Zion or um, the Europa, the last battle, which is like a nasty 12 hour documentary that's sort of based on the protocols. So I don't think that, you know, the failure to manifest any of these prophecies, Trump being reinstated as one of them, is really going to convince people to take up anti-Semitism. But I think as these prophecies fail to manifest, you know, you're going to have a couple of different consequences. A lot of people are going to decide that this is not a thing, you know, they're going to leave the movement, or it's going to inspire them to sort of take up a more active role, whether that's through, as we're seeing with the school board, you know, the grassroots movements of, of Q adherents trying to get in on the school boards to impact local education, or even taking up violence, which I mean, of course, is a very minor pool within this broader movement. But as you increase that bigger pool of anti-Semites, you also increase that minor pool of people who might actually act on it. And now you have sort of a more defined outgroup as I call it, or as we call it in extremist studies, a more defined outgroup that you can sort of channel that aggression and sort of strike out against. And that's that's really where the, the anti-Semitic part sort of comes into play is that, you know, instead of just this broad, faceless deep state who can really apply to anybody, now you have like a concentrated group, you know, a, a group in which you can concentrate all of your frustration and sort of strike out against. And it's more visible. Uh, it's more accessible, you know, through like soft targets, uh, synagogues, etc. You know, to your to your second question, there, anti-Semitism is well, as we were as you were saying, it's it's <laughs> it's been it's been so present for so long that it sort of develops this uh, like cultural memory. So, it, in my article, in in my particular case study, there's this uh, pair of I think they're anthropologists, uh, Lange and Grossman, who sort of compare anti-Semitism itself to a religion. You know, and they, they use a sort of a funkier definition of religion than other people use in the, in the business. But it's like a set of motifs or tropes that sort of develop this aura of factuality, transcend time. And therefore, it sort of demands like a certain amount of attention or respect when you come into contact with them. So like a, an example they use is Rudolf Hess, which is like this 
for those who don't know, he's like a prominent Nazi party politico in the early days of the Nazi, you know, the Nazi regime. And he was giving a speech to, I might get this wrong, but I think it was like a Swedish sect of the Nazi party. And he was sort of basically saying that at first I didn't want to believe in these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories or this, you know, anti-Semitism in general, but with enough, what he called eye-catching facts, uh, I was sort of forced to convert to anti-Semitism. And I really think that that's, yeah, why it's maintained so much prominence is that it's so old, you know, it's so long standing. I mean, the, the idea of the deicide, which is, you know, the Jews killed Christ, the Pharisees killed Christ, this powerful group of, of Jewish, I don't know if you want to call them statesmen, council members uh, back then, killed Christ because they believed he was a threat to their power. I mean, that right there is like the OG conspiracy theory, if you will. It's like the it's like the, the original conspiracy theory, and that's transcended uh, late antiquity through uh, figures like John uh, Chris Chrysostom, I think is how you pronounce his name, on through medieval era, which I mean, there's so many examples of medieval anti-Semitism on through the Nazi era through Christian identity. I mean, it's it's uh, it's just so old and it's transcended time in the sense that it's it's so present in history that it sort of demands your attention when you start to see it. And if you're already prone to believing in these conspiracy theories via QAnon, it's really hard to sort of you know, I, I mean, okay, it's really, I'll say it's really easy to sort of attach that to, you know, a Jewish cabal. It's really easy to adopt the old school anti-Semitism um, when you're already prone to believing in this massive super conspiracy theory. In, in terms of the response of uh, Christian churches in the United States and elsewhere to this question, has there been sufficient attention paid to it? Well, yeah, I mean, um, no, I, I don't think there's been enough attention sort of paid to it in... It, in fact, it really is <laughs> maybe not so much with like like more like more institutionalized uh, denominations like Catholicism, but especially among like evangelical churches, there are pastors who have sort of adopted Q narratives. I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, and I can't right now. But this is something that you see. I mean. Yeah, they, they really have sort of like co-opted QAnon. And then, uh, of course, there are the others who say, you know, this is something that's becoming popular in our churches, and we're not really sure what to do about it. I guess one of the things I'm thinking about in terms of developing responses or the responses that have been implemented insofar as uh, responding to anti-Semitic beliefs, whether it's within the context of Q or otherwise, to the extent that it depends upon um, censorship or repression, the fact that it tends to kind of reconfirm the idea that, you know, there's this uh, phenomenon called the Jews who stop you from talking about this sort of thing. And how can that be approached in a way that doesn't, I guess, uh, reconfirm uh, or lend itself to reaffirming these these belief systems? Wow, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean... That's something that I do see, like, I guess a form of anti-Semitism within QAnon is not necessarily that, you know, it is the, you know, quote unquote, the Jews that are doing this. It's, you know, the deep state is sort of maybe masquerading as Jews because it's it's the idea of who can't you question, obviously. Um, Approaching that is, man, that's that's really difficult. Uh, I'm not entirely sure I'm prepared to answer that one, but uh, it's... uh, 
Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I mean, I, I've seen, I've experienced that myself. I mean, people who comment on some of my own Twitter threads and, and some of my articles say that, look, I'm not, anti, I'm not anti-Semitic. You know what? But what what I'm seeing here is people who are hiding behind, you know, the, you know, behind Judaism, so that way they can't be criticized. Um, and approaching that is, yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, that, it's it's almost like uh, it's almost like the far rights maybe not the whole spectrum of the far right, but like the, the conservative uh, tendency in general to immediately throw their support behind Israel. You know, I, you can't call me an anti-Semite because I support Israel and Israel and Judaism are not synonymous. You know, they're not really the same thing yet. We see this time and time again. I mean, you know, people claiming that of course I can't be anti-Semitic because I support Israel, even though like in the evangelical sense where supporting Israel is, like sort of a means to an end where, you know, you get enough people, it's like their whole idea of, you know, you get enough people into Zion and the land of Zion, they're going to be forced to convert to Christianity with the second coming. So that's a really complicated question. And I'll be honest, I, I'm not sure I'm prepared to answer. How. You read an article recently about alternative for Germany, the AFD, mm-hmm. and uh, how it appeared in some early Q drops. Could you tell us a bit about what you found when you looked into that? Oh yeah, for sure. So it, it was interesting in the sense that it was, it was, I mean, not a later Q drop. It was like 171 and 173, I believe were the drops. So it was actually right around the time when Q first started posting. And by that time, Q had already developed sort of a, uh, a space for him to post his stuff. Uh, they were called the, the calm before the storm threads within the, the 4chan poll board. And this was interesting because these particular threads were outside of the CBTS threads, and they were threads that weren't discussing American politics. They were discussing German politics, specifically the, I don't know if you call it, probably not a scandal or even a crisis for that matter. It was sort of discussing, you know, whether Angela Merkel, the the chancellor of Germany, was going to be able to form uh, another coalition. And sort of the, the increased success of the AFD was a subject as well. And what we found in these in these threads was rampant uh, white genocide narratives. You know, specifically, I think it was 171 that that was like, you know, we need to meme in this specific type of government in order to preserve a white Germany. And then 173 went even further and said, you know, it's the EU, the European Union, that's sort of facilitating this. And the EU, if you're going to take like a comparative approach to QAnon, was sort of serving as this idea of the, the deep state. And it really speaks to, you know, the sort of environment that QAnon grew up in and sort of uh, developed in and like the first stages of these narratives that are being disseminated, you know, not only in U.S. politics, but now all across the world where, yeah, it wasn't just that QAnon or Q, him or her or themselves were, they were like, it wasn't, they, they were seeking out these, these white genocide narratives and these conspiratorial narratives. It's not to... It's not just that this is where they happen to land, I guess, is, is the way I was trying to put it. So it, it really speaks to sort of the broader connection to the far right. In terms of the origin of Q, uh, there's a few different theories floating around. I know that some people have suggested that perhaps it's a little bit more uh, directed than it might seem, that it's some sort of op. I was wondering what your take on that was. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know there is... Uh there's a lot of, I guess, theories that you, you know, people would uh, sort of slap on it that, you know, it was Steve Bannon or that it was the Russians or this or that. I mean, uh, the 
the fact is we, we have no idea who Q is. I mean, we might have some ideas as to who it might be, but we have no idea who Q is. And that that's the thing is like, you know, how can you like, how can you say that this is a directed operation when you don't even, the, the truth is, I, I don't know. It, so no, I mean, so to, to your question, no, I, I mean, we, we have no idea who Q is. So we have no idea whether or not it's a directed operation or, or I mean, it definitely comes off like one. Do you think at this stage, Alex, would it even be possible for someone to conclusively demonstrate that they were the person who was, you know, responsible for kickstarting this project? Because I imagine even if someone did and even if they produced, you know, some evidence to support the contention, uh, there'd be a lot of other people who would simply, you know, deny it. It seems to be to exist in within a world in which... Um, the rules of evidence seem to be temporarily suspended. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, there are ways that I, I guess I suppose one could demonstrate that they were Q. I mean, Q's posted photos before. Like one one comes to mind where he posted, or he or she or they posted a photo of like clouds riding on an airplane, and then a couple like eight or nine months later, they posted another photo which was similar, but not the same photo. So the idea is that it must have come from the same camera roll. And I suppose, yeah, you could produce those photos and through some techie stuff, you could like scrub, I guess what they call the metadata to try to figure out the authenticity of those photos. But the to the second point that you make, I mean, does it really matter? I don't think so. I, I don't think that it really matters who Q is at this point. The, the movement is sort of, in, in another sense, the movement has sort of grown beyond Q now. I mean, uh, and that's the way it always was. I mean, yeah, Q has stopped posting, but it's, you know, the narratives are still out there. They're still circulating and they're, and they're evolving. And even to a, 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 you know, in a different sense, a lot of the people who believe these Q adjacent narratives think that the, the hardcore QAnon followers are just crazy. You know, it doesn't really, I, I don't think that Q is as important to QAnon as people believe that it is, which sounds like it, it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but it's it's true. I mean, it's it sort of outgrown the need for this this person to to constantly put new stuff out there because even years later, I mean, they're just going back to the same drops if they're hardcore Q followers, or they're just subscribing to the same narratives without like a specific explicit belief in Q. Well, Alex, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow Alex, he is on Twitter. Just search for Alex Mandela. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Well, folks, uh, that's it. Uh, We will be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. Bye-bye.
Australia has joined together with their imperial mates from the US and the UK, forming a new military partnership, AUKUS. The AUKUS Anti-AUKUS Caucus is bringing together activists from across the country to launch a fight back, and we need you to join us. Panellists include Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Felicity Ruby, Tyler Mangione, Dimity Hawkins, Jacob Grech and Dave Sweeney. Join us online on Thursday the 7th of October at 7pm. For more information and to register, visit renegadeactivist.org or check out Renegade Activists on all the socials. A 3CR supporter.